The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. It is a real privilege to be here. We do send um, warm greetings from Coomera Baptist. Um, we pray for you guys regularly, love you guys, um, and thankful for Jimmy and, and Kirsty. just the, the, that this church is here. Again, I said this last I've, I've been here one other time. I don't know if you remember that. That was a while ago. But, um, you know, we, we come here... Calandra's like to be in their holiday spot for our family forever. You probably hear that all the time. But it was for us, and it's just so nice to have the church here that we can just always come to. Um, well, let's get, into, let's get into the passage. So if you have your Bibles, keep them open to Luke chapter 19, beginning at verse 11. Um, we'll be working through this. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a story. And so... Here we go. Um, usually, a, a, a pastor, you know, the beginning of a sermon, I'll, I'll probably usually do this, is give the big idea of the passage and say, here's what we're looking at this morning, just so you can orient yourself around what, where we're headed. And it's sometimes called the build the needs section, where you, you kind of give the congregation a sense of, well, here's what we're talking about, here's why it's really important, so that we're engaged and we go, yeah, no, that, that really matters. I want to actually skip that step mainly, um, and get into the passage so that as just kind of as we're in the passage, its meaning will just start to come out for us as we go through it together. The only thing I would say um, as far as building the need to hear this message is that the message and the passage, is, as you probably picked up, it, it, <clears throat> it matters with regards to our eternal souls. So that's important. You know, I'm reminded of Jesus' words that what does it well, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but to forfeit his soul? Which is a rhetorical question, right? It's a it's a it's a statement that the the, the point is no that it's it doesn't profit a man anything if we're to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. And so what we're talking about this morning is the eternal fate of our souls. The context for the parable that we're looking at <clears throat> is given to us. <clears throat> pardon me, sorry. So it's given to us in the first verse of the passage, verse 11, and it begins like this As they heard these things. So, what things? Well, you, you would have heard last week the story of Zacchaeus, and so you have um, Jesus speaking at the end of that amazing story of that little man who becomes you know, a follower of Jesus, turns from greed into giving away all of his, well, not all of it, but very generous back to people who he had defrauded and the poor. And so Jesus declares at the end of that story his mission, and he says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And he just did that. And so he says, that, well, that's why I came. What you just saw, that's why I came. That's my mission. That's what I'm all about. So he says, as they heard these things, as he heard those things, then it says, he proceeded to tell a parable because, and so then he gives two reasons for why he's telling this parable. The context is Zacchaeus, the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Now, here's two reasons why Jesus is going to tell this parable. First, it says, He was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was about to appear immediately. Right? So one reason has to do with Jesus. The other reason he's telling this parable has to do with them. Right? One reason is to do with His mission 
And the other reason is their idea about what his mission is. So it says he's, he's near Jerusalem, finally. So if you've been in the book of Luke, um, you know that it's kind of broken up into sections where he's kind of in Galilee, but then you have this journey to Jerusalem section. And this passage is at the very end of that second third of the book. So from chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus said, well, it said this, the narrator said this, Luke said, when the days drew near for him, that is Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so since that moment, from chapter 9, verse 51, we've been on the road to Jerusalem. And there's different markers along the way through Luke where he says, and he's on the road to Jerusalem, and he's getting nearer to Jerusalem. And so as you're reading the book, if it was reading for the first time, you'd be like, well, what's going to happen in Jerusalem? You have some idea that this is the point for which he has come to earth. It's going to happen in Jerusalem. What is it? But we know that this is the climax of the whole story, what, what happens in Jerusalem. But what we come to realize is that what Jesus knows will happen in Jerusalem is in contrast to what the disciples think will happen in Jerusalem. It's not that Jesus hasn't told them, it's just they don't get it, and they have a different idea of what's going to happen. It says, they supposed that the kingdom of God was about to appear immediately. Well, they supposed wrong. They were expecting a political takeover. They were expecting that the Messiah will come and set free the Jews from being under the kind of rule of the Roman Empire. They were expecting the return of the kingdom of God in kind of like a King David sense that the Messiah will come and reestablish the glory days of the nation of Israel. And to be sure, Jesus has been called the son of David. Jesus has called himself the son of David. And so here it is. We are right, you know, you get the sense in the passage, we're right near Jerusalem, right? We are so close. The Messiah is nearly about to walk in to the holy city, the city of David. We're about 17 miles away and it's Passover season. And so there are crowds that are walking up the ascent into the, into the city of Jerusalem, Crowds are gathering, the Messiah is about to enter, and so you can imagine the fever pitch type excitement that the days are here where the kingdom of God will arrive and it will arrive immediately, it says. And so, because of this, it says Jesus tells a parable because he's near Jerusalem, and him being near Jerusalem does not mean what they think it means. Which makes me think of. You know, Princess Bride, you know, that, that, you know, the dude keeps saying, inconceivable. Everyone know that movie? You know? And he's like, I don't, he keeps saying that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. And I think it's kind of as they're going into Jerusalem. I think Jesus is like, yeah, you th this doesn't mean what you think it means. And let me tell you a parable to give you, well, what actually, I think Jesus essentially tells this parable to say, here's the story for me from here on. Here's what my story is going to look like. So the story begins in verse 12. It says, A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Now, there's a historical background to this story that we won't know, but that all the people right then would know because it was a very famous story and it had only happened quite recently. And so the story was that King Herod the Great um, <clears throat> had a son and his name was Ar Archelaus. And Archelaus... 
um, was after King Herod the Great died, was given half the kingdom of that king, his dad, King Herod the Great, had. But one thing that he, his dad couldn't pass on to him was the title king, right? So you could pass on the kingdom, but one thing you can't just pass on is the king. That's something that Rome gets to decide. Caesar gets to decide. Now, for Archelaus, he wants the kingdom, but he's a bit of a vain kind of guy, and he, that won't do. He wants to be called king. And so he gathers together a group of, a group of his crew, and he, he decides, well, we're going to go to Rome, we're going to see Caesar, and I'm going to say to him why he should let me be a king, like he let my dad be the king. So he does that, he sets up, he gets his crew, and he, they head off to, to Rome to see Caesar. But little does he know that a group of, of people from in the area, in Palestine, they don't want him to be their king. And so a group of 50-odd actually get together and leave after him to try to meet him in Rome to tell Caesar, no, we do not want him to be our king. As it turns out, Archelaus had massacred 3,000 Jews at Passover and piled up their bodies in the temple. And so they would go to, to Rome and say, no, this guy, no. And they made other claims that he was just ultimately inept, hopeless at his job and ruining the whole place and corrupt. And so you see some of that play out in this story. But for now, we simply have, so far in the story, there is a nobleman who wants to receive a kingdom. And it says he goes off into a distant country. So he's going a, a distant way, which gives you the sense he's going to be away for a while. Now, we don't know when he will return, but we are told that he will return. And so what is Jesus communicating? Well, in contrast to the idea that immediately he will become the king in Jerusalem, right, because he's just about to enter it, he's saying, actually, for me to receive my kingdom, I've got to go away. I will be leaving. And that's exactly what we find as we read on, that Jesus does go away. Having died on the cross and risen again, he ascends into heaven where he rules and he reigns and he receives the kingdom. Listen to Ephesians 1 verse 20, talk about that, where it says, when he raised him from the dead and seated him, that is Jesus, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. He will go away and receive his kingdom. What does Jesus say? Right, right at the end of his life, he's on the mountain, just before he gives the great commission, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. But back to the story. Okay, so before the nobleman leaves, though, to receive his kingdom, verse 13 says this, calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 miners and said to them, engage in business until I come. Okay, so we've got 10 servants and everything's very equal in this story, right? They all get the exact same amount of money. One miner is worth about three months' wages. Okay, and so same amount of money for everyone. <clears throat> three months, lump sum. Same command to everyone. Use this money for business, as in make a profit. I want this to be a good investment. To deal with it well. And same deadline. He says, until I come. And so what is it that Jesus has given all of his servants in equal measure with the same command and the same kind of time frame? 
Well, it's the gospel, isn't it? It's the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the message of forgiveness of sins for all people who would put their faith and trust in Jesus. It's the message of eternal life. We all have it in equal measure. Every Christian gets it. I find that extremely encouraging and, and wonderfully unifying. So I'm not from this coast, I'm from the Gold Coast, right? I'm that other place. And guess what? We have the exact same gospel as you have here. Exact same gospel. What wonderful unity that we have. But it's not just us on the different coasts, right? We have the exact same, exact same gospel, exact same message as the Apostle Paul had. We have the exact same message that Billy Graham had. We have the exact same message that every single Christian throughout the history of the church has had of the death and resurrection of Jesus. We have the exact same message, the exact same entrustment of this gospel message that every Christian who ever will live throughout the world and all the continents in Africa and Asia and Europe, we all have the exact same deposit, the exact same gospel. And we have the exact same command of what to do with that gospel. That's wonderfully unifying as well. That Jesus, when he stands on that mountain before he ascends and gives to all his disciples, this is not just those early disciples or for missionaries or for a particular kind of subset of Christians. I think this is just for Christians to go into the world and make disciples. As you go, make disciples. Tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ. Tell them. What I've done, the death and resurrection and all that that achieves and the opportunity of the, to enter into the kingdom of God. Go and do that. He entrusts us and so we, we do that, right? We make that message the center of our lives. We speak it, we proclaim it, we declare it, we offer it, we give to it, we promote it with, I mean, any, any kind of means that we have and we weep over those who have not received it and long for them and pray for them. And all of this... Same message, same command of what to do with that message will all come to an end at the exact same time when our King, Jesus, returns. When He returns. When He returns, we do not know. It's kept vague and I think that's a good thing. It's a good thing. So we don't cram for like the exam at the end. We've got to always be ready, right? We'll always be ready because He could return today. He could return today. And there are things that we will not get to do in heaven. One of them is sin. Right? We will not be sinning in heaven. There's another thing we will never do again, and that is evangelize. That will be the end. Your stewardship of the gospel for the nations will end. And so we learn something, I think, about the nature of the gospel. There's something about the, that it's not just a thing that we receive so that we are saved. That, that brings us into, into right relationship with God. It is that. But it's also an entrustment. It's a thing that you have now. You have this message. I know we all have this message because there's only one way into the kingdom. That is through this message. So we all have the exact same message. And it's given to us to do something with it. Well, verse 14 says this. But his citizens hated him, that's the nobleman, and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us, right? Does that remind you of the story of Archelaus? But there's the obvious contrast, isn't it? Well, people had pretty good reason to go after Archelaus and say, no, we do not want this guy to, 
to reign over us. I mean, he massacred 3,000 Jews and, and piled them up. And like, no, no, no. But you feel like there's kind of the contrast, and it's quite disturbing, that you're treating this nobleman and, and Jesus like Archelaus. He massacred people. Jesus healed people. He raised the dead. He didn't kill. But Jesus was hated throughout his ministry by various peoples in, in various ways. And Jesus would tell his disciples, hey, if they, if they hate you, just remember, they hated me first. Right? Most obviously, of course, at Easter when it comes to the cross. In John 19, just before Jesus would be crucified, Pilate says to the Jews, he says, Behold your king. You know the Jews, how they responded? Away with him, away with him, crucify him. We do not want this king. So, the nobleman leaves, he does become king, receives his kingdom, and he returns as he said he would in verse 15. It says, When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. So he's back. The time is up. Um, the time is up because he's back. And now it's time to see how you have done. And so that just does, I mean, this does, you know, in a bad way, kind of takes me back to school days where you're just kind of like, oh, yeah, time's up, you know. And you just remember those, oh, today's the day, right? Oh, man, that's due today. You know, at least we knew we had a due date, but I just remember that sinking feeling of, yeah, no, fair enough. I was warned that this is a big assignment and you've got a lot of time. And, and there were warnings along the way. And, and then it's like, oh, that's due tomorrow, you know, it's like, Oh, I've been playing basketball. That's not the assessment. But so here it is, and everyone has the same question on that day. Same question. Isn't that amazing? We'll all undergo so much of the same. And we all enter into the kingdom in, in different ways, but actually, there's the one gate. You might get to the gate in different ways, but it's the one gospel. And so they all had the same money, they had the same command. They had the same time frame, and now they have the same judgment. That he might know, it says, what they had gained by doing business. And so Jesus will ask us when he returns, which he will, how we have spent the time we have been given and how each one of us has stewarded the gospel that he gave us. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, it says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Hebrews 9 verse 27, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. What if Jesus asked you right now, how are you going stewarding my gospel? How you would go, how you feel like you would go. This week, just this week, how did you steward the gospel? Because you have it. You have this message. How did you steward it? Well, verse 16 continues. It says, The first came before him, saying, Lord, your miner has made ten miners more. That's pretty good. I think that's high achieving. That's, that's um, that A-grade student. That's a thousand percent profit. Uh, but he's not just a high achiever, he's also humble. Don't you hate those people? And it's like, you're really good at stuff and you're, just, you're not even arrogant about it so I can not like you. You know, it's like, they're, he's, he's, they're, he's good and he's humble. How do you know he's humble? What does he say? Lord, your miner 
has made 10 miners more. What produces the more? Well, it was yours, and it produced it. And I didn't really do it. It wasn't me. And so it is with the gospel. So the gospel multiplies. And what would you say? What would you say? As you steward the gospel and perhaps it bears fruit, what would you say? Would you say, Lord, I have produced for you, you know, with my kind of articulation and my wit and my kind of wisdom and my, the way that I can, you know, say words and stuff. You know, my genius, that's produced so much for you. And, and, and no, that's, that's not what happens. And, and praise God that's not what happens because it's not about us then. Right? And Paul will say in, in Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? It is the power of God unto salvation. You know, read through Acts and it says, the word of God multiplied. It wasn't the people. I mean, the power is in the message. That's so freeing. He gives us this gospel to steward and it's the power. It's not about us. That's wonderfully true. So what does the king say to the first servant who... Obviously, he's done quite well. Verse 17, and he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. He gets a well done. He's a good servant because he was a faithful servant. And notice the reward. It just seems like outrageously outsized. It's like, yeah, you stewarded three months worth of wages well. Here's ten cities. What? What? It's like you, you stood three months away. You're like, well, here's Brisbane and here's Melbourne. You want Sydney? All right, you can have Sydney. You know, LA, New York, Paris, London. What else do you want? It's all yours. You handled three months of wages really, really well. I mean, you get to sense of the gener- like the nature of this nobleman. He is a generous king. A gracious king who obviously loves to and enjoys rewarding his faithful servants. Well, the second guy comes along. And the second came and saying, it says in verse 18, Lord, your miner has made five miners. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Well, that's a 500% increase. That's, that's quite good. Still pretty good. Um, so here's five cities. What do you want? Five cities. You just imagine the look on her face is just, really? That's, the, that's what I get? That's a crazy. You imagine looking at the first guy. It's like, that's, man, high five. Like, that's, that's unbelievable. Look at this king. Man, he's a great king. He's a generous king. He's a kind king. He is a, just a magnanimous king. Well, there's one more that we meet. We don't meet all ten. But we meet one more. Verse 20 says this. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your miner, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. It's so obviously so different. He just gives it back as it was given to him. And I, I did nothing. I, did, I, did, I literally did nothing with it. I put it inside a hanky, in a handkerchief. That's where snot goes. And you just put it in there. I'm just so thankful we don't do hankies anymore. It just doesn't, it never made any sense to me that we would snot in a thing and keep it. And, <laughs> and then wash it and just want to use the same thing over. No offense if you're still using the hanky. That's, 
That's perfectly fine. There is freedom in the Lord to use hankies. Don't take that as the word of God moment. That is a beside the point moment. But anyway, why would you put all your money inside a hanky, in a handkerchief? Doesn't make any sense. So why did he do it? You're going to have to explain this servant. You've got this landlord. He gave you that. He gave you the command. It was so explicit. Like, why would you do that? And he gives an, he gives an answer. And he basically says, hey, it's not me. It's you. It's your fault. He blames it on the character of him. He says, you're a severe man. You take what you don't deposit. You reap what you don't sow. In other words, you are ruthless. You get rich on the back of others. And you just take and you take and you take. That's the kind of king that you are. And so his logic is, I think, is like, well, if I make money, he's just going to take it off me anyway. right? And if I, if I mess it up, well, he's just going to punish me because he's a severe man. He just takes it all anyway. And so he pulls out. He says, I didn't do anything. To be sure, if the landlord was like that, if he takes what he didn't deposit, he reaps what he doesn't sow, then yes, he's a severe man. The only problem is, that's not what he's like. We've already seen what he's like, the landlord. He's actually abundantly out of control, like beyond your imagination, generous and kind. Take what he doesn't deposit. He deposited to you, and then he didn't take it. He gave 10 cities to the guy and five cities to the guy. What are you talking about? The servant does not know the king. Verse 22 then says, He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words. This is the king. You wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. The king's like, okay, all right, let's play your game. Like, let's, 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 let's just go down that road for a bit and let's just see. Let's just play it out, right? For argument's sake, I'm a severe man, right? I do all that. I, I take what I didn't deposit and I reap what I don't sow. Okay, then, what would you do if you truly thought that's what I was like? You'd at least deposit the money because that's risk-free. It's going to collect interest. You'd do something because you'd be, you'd be in fear of me and I commanded you to, to, make, you know, to produce in business with this thing. You'd do something. And he's just calling him out. Who is this servant? I think the servant's a liar. I don't think he actually believes that the king is a severe man. I think that's the point of the king saying, well, if you thought that, you would have done that. You didn't do that, so you don't actually think that. And so who is this servant? In the end, I think what's revealed is that he wasn't actually a servant at all. He was actually one of the citizens more than a servant. So the king says, you wicked servant. In the end, you just didn't want him to be your king. You just didn't want to do what he said at all. And so if you were given the gospel to steward... But you aren't really a Christian, right? So maybe you have knowledge of the gospel. This is what this guy might be like. Knowledge of the gospel, but you're not really a Christian. What are you going to do with it? Well, probably nothing. You're not that keen on everybody coming into the kingdom and being saved. You're not saved yourself. Sure, this guy presented like one of the king's servants, but not all who claim the name and maybe even look the same 
maybe they turn up to church and maybe they do some of the same things and they behave in some of the same ways as the servants, as the Christians. But not all who do all those things are truly in Christ. How do we know? Well, in this story, one of the ways you know is that they have no interest in the spread of the gospel. A person who has no interest in the salvation of other people's souls. A person who just kind of keeps all their money to themselves and does not like give to their local church and give to missions work and, and just long for the spread of the gospel through their resources with their words. They just say nothing. Just don't share. They got this message. They say they love this, but they don't share it. Well, that person might fit this, fit this description. Now, there are Christians who struggle to serve the Lord because they truly do misunderstand the character of God, hey? Um, so so it, it sometimes is a genuine struggle in the heart of a Christian, just the sense that, man, God is a, it feels like he's just against me. Right? He seems like a hard man, a severe man, and, that he's, and he's kind of just waiting to kind of just punish me if I do a step wrong. And so there's a fear about serving him. There's a fear about kind of being a witness and sharing the gospel because I might get it wrong and I'm just going to mess it up because I, just a, a kind of misunderstanding of what God is like. And so the encouragement, I'm not, I would not want to kind of bring unease to your salvation. I want to encourage you in the actual character of God and that is that he is kind and he is generous and he is with you by his spirit. And you don't need to fear Oh, he is a generous to all of his servants who love him. But that's not this guy. It's not this third person. Because he doesn't do anything because he just isn't a servant. It says, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And he entrusts that mission to continue while he's gone, right? I came to seek and save the lost. Well, the king's going away to receive his kingdom. But he entrusts that seeking and saving of the lost to continue with his people. But this guy does nothing because he, doesn't, he just doesn't have it. So verse 24, it says this. And he said to those who stood by, take the miner from him and give it to the one who has the ten miners. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten miners. I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So he takes that miner from that wicked servant. So now he has nothing. But he may as well not have had it in the first place anyway. He didn't do anything with it. He just kind of put it in his handkerchief. So it may as well, well, this is the generosity of the king. This is the actual kindness and generosity of the king. I'm just going to keep giving. I'm just going to keep giving to my servants who are faithful. And so he gives it to the first guy. More for him. Verse 27. The judgment continues with this final group, and it says this, But as for these enemies of mine who did not want... Remember the citizens who went after and said, We don't want him to be our king. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Words can make us tremble, hey? Words... I think, to make us who know the gospel strive so that all our friends and family would not come to that day unwarned, uncared for, unloved, unprayed for. I think words to warn those of us who might be in here now saying, and I don't know you, but 
if you're here and you've said, I don't want him to be my king. I don't want him to be my king. These are words to warn you. God is not severe with his people, but there is a severity here at the end in his justice to these who hated him. Romans 11 verse 22 says, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. So that's the passage, there's heaps we could say. And I'll just say just a few things in close. I think the big, biggest picture is that we must live our lives in the context of the story of Jesus. I think Jesus tells, this, tells us this parable so that we know his story, so that we can live in light of his actual story. If we get his story wrong, we'll live differently. Right? If, if, if the disciples continue to think, yep, in Jerusalem, there's going to, he's going to bring the kingdom immediately, well, that will lead to a different kind of life to the one he's wanting his people to lead. Right? That will lead to more like politics than, than loving your neighbor. Right? That will lead more to domination than, than kind of serving. Right? No, Jesus wants his disciples to live in light of his incarnation, his equipping of his people with the gospel, his rejection by many, He's crowning his king through his death and his resurrection, his one day return, and the day of his return is the day also of his judgment. See, Jesus tells them the right story so that they would get the right story. You can live in light of the actual, true, correct story, the story of Jesus. And so there are three types of people, obviously, in this story, three ways to live in light of Jesus' story. In group number one, there well. They were the third in the thing, but I'm, I'm, I'm reversing it. There are those who do not want him to be king. That's one group. He's leaving to receive the kingdom. and We don't want you to be our king anyway, at all. We hope as you go to this foreign country, you do not receive the kingdom. We don't want you. Do you notice how it defines, it says they hated him. Do you know, see how it defines that they hated him? I find this really stark. They, they hated him because they didn't want him to be their king. The Bible calls that that hatred of God. That's not how we would describe it. You know, because I think we have, we have probably have friends, we probably have family who, because it's very common to say, hey, no, no, I don't hate Jesus. I respect him. You know, I respect him as I like some of the things that he said, right? He's got some like, excellent ideas with regards to this and with regards to that. And the Bible just does not play games like that. And they'd say, that, you, no, 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 no. He's your king. He must be your king or nothing. That's hating him. That's actually demeaning and belittling. He's the king of kings. He's the creator of the world. And you're like, yeah, I like a few things that he says. No, he died on the cross to offer you salvation and forgiveness of all your sins forever. Yeah, I like it. No. I think the Bible puts it stark so that it forces us out of kind of a mushy middle to go, no, he's either your king or in this story, in these words, you're hating him. So here again how the story ends. But as for these enemies of mine, he says, who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. We just wouldn't want to censor the words of Jesus, would we? We wouldn't want to be embarrassed by them. I think he says them. And so we must say them and declare them as they are his. And so I'd beg you, if you're not his, if you've never turned from your sin and decided that, no, I don't need to be my own king, 
I want him to be my king. I would beg you to reconsider and do it today. Have him be your king. He is a great king. He's a generous and kind king. And he died on the cross, which we'll celebrate in Easter, to make a way for you and him to be reconciled forever. Second, there are those who present as servants of Jesus but they show by their lives that they actually aren't. That there is a day when all the masks come off. He presented as a servant, but he was not one. And the Bible warns us of this person regularly. You know, there will be some, many who say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will turn to them, Jesus says, and say, I never knew you. But they looked, you know, like the servants, you know. You don't even need to look past Judas. He, was, he looked like one of the twelve, you know, for a long time. And he wasn't. And Jesus is not fooled. To be sure, on that day, just like this servant, I'm sure there are going to be stories that come out. Well, I, I mean, I, you know, an excuse like, I mean, I, I just thought this, right? I just thought this. I just misunderstood your character. And I just, I was just doing that. And, and on that day, it will all just fall flat because Jesus is not fooled. And, and actually, remember what Jesus does, the, the king does with this person? He says, okay, let's use your words. And actually, your words will condemn you. I'll be careful to think that we would have excuses and we would have kind of reasons for our failure to actually steward the gospel in our lives and show true fruit of knowing the gospel. Well, your words might condemn you. You claim to know Jesus. right? You claim to love him. You claim to be forgiven by his death, his bloodied death on the cross and his resurrection. You claim to know that he is the only way, the truth and the life. Like no one comes to the Father except through him. You claim to be a child of God and you tell no one? Make that make sense. Make it make sense. It can't. You don't give any money towards that? You don't give any of your time and resources towards ultimate, eternal the best news in the universe in your hands? It can't make sense. So third, there are those who, while he is gone, faithfully serve him as their king. I trust that that's you this morning. I trust it is. And it just encouragement to recognize afresh that Christ has given you, entrusted you into your hands, the good deposit, the good deposit of the best news in all the universe of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the idea would just feel for us like we would hide it, just like, what? What are you talking about? Hide it? Not a chance. Tuck it away so no one knows. What? That made make no sense. And it would make no sense. If it, so how I spend my money? where I give my money, how I spend my time, the jobs I take and the jobs I don't take. Like, there might be jobs, like, you just imagine the scenario. You're like, there's a job, there's a promotion, and you could get this, like, far more money, but it would take away from your opportunities to, I don't know, like, like faithfully parent your children. Well, that's a no-brainer. Or it would take away my opportunities to disciple other people in my local church. I'll, I'll pass on that, that big promotion. It would take away my, my opportunities to be part of my local church. I'm not saying, I'm not, this is not law, I'm just saying, what lens, like if the gospel is this thing to be steward and it's the best news in all the universe and we have a deadline, 
wouldn't we just make our whole lives, like not just believe it, but make our whole lives just shaped by it? You know, I, got, I know lots of people who have moved long distances for a new job. I just haven't met that many people, you know, and I'll, find a, I'll try to find a church when I get there. I just haven't met that many people who have gone, I'm going to move to this church and try to find a job when I get there. But why not? What does, what does our choices in our lives make, declare or communicate about the primacy of the gospel in our lives? What does our calendar tell us where our treasure is? Um, well, what else would we who know the gospel want to make our lives about? I listened to this interview with um, Robbie Williams. Anyone remember Robbie Williams? <coughs> I do. I was telling my kids about Robbie Williams. They never heard of Robbie Williams, you know. But he's one of the biggest stars of the, I don't know, 90s, was it? Was it 90s? 2000s? Something like that. Anyway, super famous, super rich, apparently. And <coughs> in this interview, um, the guy asked him, what's the fanciest thing you've ever bought? And he's like, well, his words were, I bought a really big house. And he has, so he's got his wife and he's got his four kids and he's talking about this 20 acres of land he bought in Beverly Hills. I imagine that's quite expensive. And in that Beverly Hills house, he has 27 toilets. Imagine, 27 toilets. Um, he bought it as a way, he said, of keeping his money safe. He was like, I don't really understand the stock exchange and all that, but I do understand kind of houses, right? So I could just buy a house, and that's a good way of keeping my money safe in this life. But then he said, he began to talk about, actually, it hasn't turned out the way I thought, right? I bought this massive place, and I was, you know, like, did a grown-up thing. But then he said, I realized I needed to hire three housekeepers, a house manager, two full-time gardeners, he has security, two nannies, all full-time to upkeep this massive house. He says, I pay house insurance every year of $700,000. A house tax in Beverly Hills of $400,000. There's 1.1 million in just in the wind, plus all the staff in the wind, just to keep up the thing, this house. You know what he said? He said these words. He said, the head tax, like the mental tax, of having a property that big is you can't enjoy it. He said he comes down the stairs in the morning. He sees 11 cars parked in his car park. None of them are his. He said, that morning, I came down the stairs. I walked into my kitchen. There were eight people there. None of them are my family. I can't enjoy it. And I just wanted to like compare, like you could go after that with all your heart, right? The big house of God. It just feels ridiculous in light of entrusted with the gospel, this good news of the salvation of souls for all eternity. When there's so much at stake on judgment day, I just want to give our lives to that, wouldn't we? Not that, not like it's just so empty, so ridiculous compared to this. And so I just want to finish with this last thought, and that is none of us have done that perfectly. And so I wouldn't want us to walk away with overbearing guilt that I've not made my life about the gospel. It would be good to do that and to encourage us in that. I think Jesus wants us to do that. But just remember that the gospel message that we're passing on is one of forgiveness for 
And it includes the sin of not making that as primary in our lives as we ought to have done. Christ died for that sin as well. So be free and live free so that we can just give our lives for most ultimate things. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others. But please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.